we've got to release that as a single at some point. Uh, welcome to Kernels of Truth, brought to you by Progress Kentucky. This week, we are overjoyed to have Bill Londrigan, the president of the Kentucky AFL-CIO, or the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations. I can't wait to hear from him. Doug's going to fill us in on some sketchy-looking actions tied to what's always sketchy, campaign finance reform. Um, what is ever sketchier? And Chris is going to let us know where things stand in the UPS strike. And then we're going to close out with a critical, if slightly familiar, call to action. But first, are you ready to help turn Kentucky purple? We know that our state is deeply red, with a GOP supermajority committed to moving us backwards on LGBTQ plus rights, on BIPOC visibility, on women's rights, eroding the sanctity of our voting process through gerrymandering, and weakening the ability of unions to collectively organize for better pay and better working conditions. All this and their critically important elections coming to voters across our state this November. So if you want a Commonwealth that works for all of us, join Progress Kentucky and support our campaign to turn our Commonwealth purple. You can make a donation at our Secure Act Blue website link below and we're planning our election campaign launch to push back against the hateful liar, Dan Cameron, and we need resources to print flyers, to pay for text platforms, and to promote our efforts on social media and through digital ads. Your help is going to directly go to helping make sure that we have four more years of Andy. So, it is time to check in on our co-hosts. Let us all know who you are, where you are, and what does your protest sign say today? Oh, and you there on the internet. We mean you, you too. What does your sign say? Put it in the chat while we're sharing ours. Uh, so I'm Willie. I'm coming from beautiful Mount Sterling, Kentucky, uh, home of the Gateway Regional Art Center, which was just named the best art center in the state of Kentucky. And today my protest sign says poetry is fight too. Um, I think sometimes uh, me in particular, I feel like I have to literally go out and fight people. Um, but no, I think there are lots of ways that we can help change how people see the world. Uh, and whatever your ways are, uh, you engage with those. You don't have to use the uh, same method as everyone else. Um Doug, how are you? Where are uh, you? What's your sign say? Yes, Willie, I'm doing great. It's so good to see you and, and also have uh, Chris on the show and also have Nate in the background running the show for us. I'm Doug Price from Harrison County. Um, I don't really have a sign to hold up. I mean, I, I could use that as my sign, uh, but also I'm really stuck on the fact that people don't vote. So I guess my sign says, help get out the vote, people. You have mm -hmm. to vote. How about you, know, you Chris? Uh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, here in Madison County, Kentucky, and uh, I'm, I'm going to say Berea, a claim that Berea is the hippity, hip, hippity, hippie capital of Kentucky. Um, and uh, uh, so um, my union sign, not union sign, 
Man, well, I like it's a union sign today. I think that's good. I, I, I'm mixing a lot of stuff up right now. <laughs> uh, my protest sign says "Union Strong" today. Union Strong. So, uh, you know, I think what what's what all these are about is agency, right? I think we're we're in a time when people really don't feel uh, at their hearts that anything's going to change, uh, and so you know, voting is really the belief in the organ in, in the in the system itself that it's going to change. I think union work is belief that we collectively have power. Um, and frankly, poetry is a belief that it's all worth fighting for. Right. Yeah. Um, and Kentucky's worth fighting for. Uh, Doug, you want to start us out and tell us uh, one of those fights we got to have? <laughs> uh, certainly. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, tonight, my story is taken from a Kentucky Lantern article by Tom Loftus supplemented by some additional research that kind of, I don't want to say it opened my eyes because my eyes have been open and, uh, but it, it brought out some shenanigans, I think, uh, by our Republican controlled legislature. The article details fundraising by Laura Haney, who has a consulting firm. And from what I found, this may be a perfect example of the title of the book that Mitch wrote, The Long Game. Where this started, in 2017, Senate Bill 75 was passed, and this bill changed some of the regulations uh, around campaign finance reform. In this case, reform meant the Republican-controlled legislature opened up the pockets of big business to allow unlimited amounts of donations to the building fund of political parties. Yep building funds. And unlimited means unlimited. There's been at least $1 million donation that I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Tom mentioned, Tom Loftus mentioned the 2017 bill, so I thought I should do a little digging. Guess who sponsored the bill? Damon Thayer, Robert Stivers, and Will Schroeder. The sponsors of this bill indicated the bill was going to pass from the get-go and passed pretty much along uh, party lines. Here's the wording that opened up unlimited amount of funds going to building funds. Make those contribution limits not applicable to contributions to a state executive committee's building fund account. Individuals have contribution limits, but this law removed those limits from corporations. Franklin Roosevelt said, in politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. The bill was passed on March 15, 2017, and on March 17, 2017, Laura Haney formed Haney Consulting, LLC. The registration is not current, but still listed as active. Kentucky Lantern reported that Laura Haney also operates from a Virginia office. I searched the Virginia Secretary of State's office and found no listing. There was an interesting listing. Kentucky Lantern sent several questions to Sean Southard, the spokesman for RPK about the building project. And in answer to one of the questions, he responded that Laura Haney has done fundraising for Kentucky Republicans for years. She's fundraised for us as well as Senators McConnell and Paul. As part of their article, they analyzed data from the Federal Elections Commission and the Kentucky Registry of Finance and found that since the start of 2019, 
Laura Haney or Haney Consulting had been paid $2,169,800 by federal and state political committees. 84% of that was related to McConnell, 12% related to Rand Paul and the balance to other political committees. Where does this lead? Will there be a new law that allows these funds to be used to support candidates or issues? The article by Tom Loftus and reported in the Kentucky Lantern notes that so far, 2.65 million has been donated to renovate the property referred to appropriately as the Mitch McConnell building. How much money does the RPK need to refurbish an existing building? Is it the intent to tear down the historic structure and build a new shrine to Senator Mitch McConnell? If you've listened to my stories in the past, you have heard me say many times, Mitch McConnell uses money to create power and uses that power to create money. It's circular. This extends to big corporations that have donated substantial funds since late 2022 to the RPK building fund. Those include the 1 million I mentioned earlier from Pfizer, now resources, a half a million, Metropolitan Life Insurance and, and Verizon, 300,000 each, AT&T, a couple hundred thousand, Philip Morris, Microsoft, Comcast, 100,000 each, and Delta Airlines, 50,000. So it is to be understood, of course, that each of these corporations expect nothing in return. Pfizer just decided during funding the Commonwealth's RPK building was a worthwhile project. The only funds that have been paid out were to the firm that was paid by RPK to fundraise on behalf of the building fund. But it gets better. The money was paid to Haney Consulting, a firm owned and operated by Laura Haney. Personally, I'll be watching this upcoming session to see if language is inserted into another unrelated bill to allow those kinds of funds to be spent in other ways. I need to mention this. I'm going to be nice. Uh, lastly, I must mention that today during a press conference, Senator Mitch McConnell had some medical issues. I hope that he will seek medical attention. Willie and Chris, what are y'all's thoughts? My first thought is that Britney Spears' mansion costs $9.8 million. <laughs> and that's Britney Spears. <laughs> and that is, you know, in a very expensive location. What in the world? You know, she has pools, probably you know, multi a thousand bathrooms. It's Britney Spears. Um, what exactly do they need all that money for? And this, I'm, I'm guessing, isn't a one-time thing, right? They can do it as many, as they year after year after year. <laughs> the unlimited donations for this shrine. <laughs> right. They have an existing house in Frankfurt that is there. I mean, it's a lovely house. It's several years old. I don't know. It's historic. But uh, apparently, and, and they bought a, an adjacent lot. So maybe the idea is to uh, tear, out, tear that down and build just a, a gorgeous $3 million building in not really downtown Frankfurt, but on the way up to the Capitol. Uh, it's a big, big waste of money. 
Yeah. Let them let them soak all that money into into a building and not campaign, you know, campaign funds. <laughs> True. Anyway, um, I would rather that money be wasted in, in that way uh, and not and not, you know, sunk into uh, Mitch, you know, any any of their Republican far right fascist campaigns. <laughs> My thought is, is, uh, is this, is this sort of like a Scientology thing where <laughs> if they, all of their investments are in properties and they're super rich, or is this like a Sarah Winchester? If we keep building it, the ghost can't get us. Uh, <laughs> and if, if anybody, if any, um, Doug, you, you mentioned Mitch McConnell's, uh, speech thing, like if it, you know, whoever's watching or listening, if you haven't, heard or or seen the the video of uh, mitch mcconnell talking today and it looks like there was a glitch in the matrix um you know like go watch it um personally you know when i first saw it I'm, i was worried that he was having a stroke mm. um and uh he seemed very uh frail weak uh not politically but just as in as a human in being um at, at that moment so um yeah he should seek medical attention that's uh as far as i'll go with that <laughs> i love that doug won't say anything mean but he'll laugh after <laughs> <laughs> i do have a story i can share uh, about uh myself and mitch mcconnell and one of my grandsons please um, my grandson was involved at an event that was being held at the uh, McConnell Center. And Mitch McConnell was there, and he had uh, several copies of his book that the uh, students that were there were able to uh, to receive one. So he had gotten one book, and then he he's aware of my affinity or lack of affinity for Senator McConnell, and so he thought. To, uh, to go up to McConnell and ask him to autograph this book for his grandfather. And he wanted, he, he asked him to sign it uh, something like uh, to your greatest supporter or something like that. And Mitch McConnell asked him what his name was and, and he told him and he looked at him kind of strange. He did sign the book, but I've often wondered if he knew that uh if he knows my name and if he knows that was my grandson and i think that would be just stupendous i'm sure he i bet they've got a code word on their walkie talkies when you come up uh you know, penguin is uh in the park penguin is in the park <laughs> you know you mentioned his book the long game i was um I was in his office uh, with uh, Morgan Rankin, who was the 2022 Tennessee Teacher of the Year, uh, and we were trying to get them not to kill um, Head Start uh, funding. And I, I was like, how do I convince Mitch McConnell's people to believe for a second that we have anything in common? So I just started with that. I was like, I get it. I'm the gay teacher. Like, obviously, on the surface, we might not have a lot in common, but... Mitch McConnell plays the long game. I didn't even know it was the top of his book, but I was like, oh, you know, I've seen him dress down idiot 
Republicans. I'd love to see him do it some more, maybe. Anyway, they were so excited when I, and they were like, did you know that's his book? And I was like, no. And so, of course, there's like 20 copies of it in the office, so they pull it out. Um, <laughs> and then they showed us how the wall actually opens up, and you can go outside of the building uh, from the wall itself. It was pretty cool. Um, didn't make me a fan, but... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, well, you know, that was, that was an honor that you've been to, uh, as Nate calls it, uh, Mitch's cave. <laughs> we had a, we had a guest on the show that several years ago, she had been trying to get in to see Mitch McConnell and she was told that I, I forget the figure. It was either 25,000 or 50,000. You had to be at a certain donor level to be able to get in to see Mitch. Oh, and, uh. and, and as luck would have it, she had a friend who apparently was at that level, was mm -hmm. able to get her in to, to see Mitch. Oh, so Mitch was, I was told multiple times, uh, you will not see Mitch McConnell in uh, Washington. Uh, you will see multiple high level minions. And I did see that. Um, oh, Okay. I think we were talking to his education minion, his uh, Head Start minion. He has a lot of them. Wow. I mean, that what you just said, Doug, was just was just blatant, you know, cronyism of mm. I don't care about my constituents unless they give me money. And only the ones with money matter enough to be heard, whether yeah. that's intentional or not. I mean, that's the effect, right? Right. Sure. Yeah. That oh god, I mean I know that that's how it works, but to hear a story confirming it, yeah, Mitch, please, exactly, Nate. Well, Chris, uh, can you give us some better news with a absolutely. win? Absolutely, for the little man. We win, we win, we win. All right, um, Teamsters UPS reach game-changing labor deal to avert strike. Um, I'm super excited if you can't tell about this. Uh, so UPS and its workers represent uh, by the Teamsters reached a tentative deal on Tuesday to prevent an August 1st strike of 340,000 union members at the packaging carrier. A work stoppage could have cost the U.S. economy billions by disrupting supply chains and upending distribution to both large and small businesses, hospitals, and homes. Representatives of the UPS Teamsters locals uh, will meet to review the deal on July 31st, and members will vote uh, vote on it on August 3rd and August 22nd. So this is, this is not set in stone, but preliminarily, this is a big win. Um, this will be a five-year contract that includes wage increases to, to bring part-timers pay up to at least $21 an hour immediately and full-time workers to an average top rate of $49 an hour. Yeah, that's nice. Um, UPS also agreed to workplace safety protections such as air conditioning and vehicles purchased after uh, January 2024, and to stop the practice of requiring overtime on off days. These are these are definitely great things. Air conditioning, as with climate change, is going to cause. You know, there's already already been some worker deaths and a lot of uh, worker harm 
because of the the heat waves that we've had and so that's only going to continue with climate change um so this that that is a that is a big deal um teamsters general president sean o'brien said in a statement ups has put 30 billion in new money on the table as a direct result of these negotiations we've changed the game battling it out day and night and make sure and to make sure our members won an agreement that pays strong wages rewards their labor and doesn't require a single concession uh, that this contract sets a new standard and a labor agreement and raises the bar for all workers and carol tome ceo of ups called this deal a win-win-win agreement um, I do want to point out something that uh, um, I, I feel like doesn't really meet, uh, co coincide within this statement by Sean O'Brien, is that he said that they've uh, battled day and night, and then in, toward the end of his statement says that there wasn't a single concession. Mm -hmm. um, so the those those two things don't necessarily mesh in my mind. Um, well, yeah, because he he's he's painting it as this positive. We're so happy there wasn't a concession, though we fought hard for there, for there to be one. Um, right. But you know how sad that what 150 years after we started learning these lessons that we're still having to wait until enough people die to get things like air conditioning and hot facilities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that, that they got the deal that they wanted. Um, I hope the, the workers are happy. I, I feel like, you know, just, uh, uh, just as a mild criticism, if, if there wasn't a single concession, then I don't think that they were pushing for enough. Um, that they could have gotten more. They left stuff on the table that they could have gotten. Um, but uh, but regardless, you know, anytime, you know, you get increased pay, increased safety conditions um, across the board, that's good. Um, and I think that, that this sounds like a better deal than, than what happened with the, uh, the train system uh, mm. several months ago. Do y'all remember... Um, what kind of deal they struck in the end. I don't I think the I, I only remember not being happy with the deal. Um, Cause I think they, the, the part about them having to potentially come in every day didn't change. Right. Uh, I don't know for sure. Yes. But they, the, they only got three sick days in a year. I think mm -hmm. is what, what I think it was just three. Um, that they could call out. I, my memory may not be serving me right, but I think it was a very low number. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think they could still be called in on a day that they try to schedule off. Um, and uh, and I think the pay the pay increases was minimal. Mm. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know who they have negotiating for them. Maybe they need to get Sean O'Brien. Uh, negotiating for them. I think they need to get NEMA negotiating for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a question for you now uh, in the comments. Nate, I have uh, been in the... I, I was in two unions at once, actually, 
I can never have too many. I was trying to find a third when I just decided to leave the game altogether. But I'm still in the American Federation of Teachers, which covers my current job. Um, and I'm still on the National LGBTQ Task Force. And we are starting a Kentucky LGBTQ uh, Task Force as a part of Kentucky 120 United um, so that we can focus specifically on um, advocacy for LGBTQ employees. Nice. Uh, Doug? Yeah. Uh, Nate yeah. wants to know if you've ever been in a union. Just curious. Yes. You know, I, I, I have never been in the union. I've never had the opportunity to, to join a union. Um, I remember I had graduated from college. I was getting ready to graduate from college. And I was in Lexington. I can't remember the name of the, the company, but um, there was a company in Lexington. I was going to go in and apply for an office job. I had a degree in business administration. I think it was trained now that I think about it. Uh, and they were striking there and they had uh, uh, people standing outside. And I told them I was just going in to apply for a job. And, uh, and I said, but I won't cross the line if you'd rather that I don't. So the person said, we would rather that you don't. So I didn't apply there. Mm. The, the other jobs that I've had uh, working for state government and uh, a bank and uh, actually worked for EI DuPont de Nemours for uh, two or three years. And that was a, it was a non-union job, but we were, we only had like five people in the area where I worked. Mm. Yeah. So that's my non-union history. <laughs> and Nate's from Vermont, so I think they're required at birth to be put in the union up there. Uh, I think so, even, yeah. Even the schools have the word union in the name, just in case anyone's confused. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, in uh, KEA and AFT as a teacher, and then my uh, um, I co-own a print shop, and we are in process of being union. Um, so... You know, whenever whenever we get big enough, we'll be we'll be one with the Teamsters. Actually, I was I was in KEA and AFT at the same time as well. Uh, bigger, uh, <laughs> just make them both work at the same time. Uh, yeah, well, the, the dues for AFT was so you know uh, small enough that I could do that, and mm -hmm. you know I was uh, I'm sure that this may be your case too. I don't know, but. I was a little upset with KEA mm -hmm. and how they handled uh, some things uh, back in the um, Bevan days. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and so I, I really, I wanted some, I wanted an organization that was going to push hard and, mm -hmm. and, you know, us be willing to strike because that, I mean, striking is our power. Yeah. And if we're not willing to strike, then we don't have mm -hmm. power. Yes. Um, I too, I'll say this, uh, when you talk about any kind of organization like that, you can't really say it anything. Are we talking about individual members or are we talking about, because I had so many really good positive experiences, especially at my local level of KEA. Um, but I think anytime you have a really big uh, organization, um, maybe it just needs a little extra care to make sure that everyone's heard. And I, I was really attracted to, uh, at the time, how, how easily heard I could be. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and, and act. Um, and boy, uh, when they hear you, do they respond? Because <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, Chris, would you like to introduce our guest? You are talking about unions left and right excitedly. I want to give you the honor. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me scroll here. And uh, so I would like to um, introduce our our guest who is bill londrigan he is uh the president of our kentucky afl cio um so he is a big part of uh of union power in kentucky and uh, making sure that us working folks uh, are heard uh are you there bill i sure am good to see you guys thank you good for hopping on board Um, Bill, thank you so much. You're a longtime friend of the show from what I understand. Uh, I'm, I say new, but I feel like I've been doing this for a year now. Uh, but it's really great to have you on the show. Uh, we were talking earlier about what questions we would want to ask you. Uh, and you know, the first thing is we're always thinking about Andy. We're Jones up for Andy. We want four more years of Andy. Uh, and you can answer this however you want, but our question is sort of, uh, how can labor, uh, be a part of it, or in what ways is labor being a part of uh, four more years of Andy Bashir? Well, uh, certainly we've been very supportive of Andy and, uh, and vice versa. You know, as uh, as we've worked together over the years here, uh, we've had a very constructive and positive relationship. And, you know, given the circumstances we're in, in uh, with the uh, balance of power, uh, having Andy in the governor's office has been a uh, a real important thing for us to have because he's, you know, represents a backstop for all the stuff that the legislature has been pushing through. Uh, and of course, you know, he's vetoed so many of these bills that have come through there that have been bad bills. Uh, mm-hmm. and they've been able to override them, obviously, right? Uh, but at the same time, we, you know, there was a bill this year, this uh, autonomous vehicle bill that's going to allow driverless vehicles on Kentucky's roads uh, with all this AI stuff that everybody's talking about. And we got to the end of the session and they pulled it back up after we beat it in committee. And uh, he was able to veto the bill and they weren't able to override it. So, Mm. you know, those types of examples of, you know, getting uh, that kind of support is is critical to us right now. Uh, So, you know, in addition to just working together on policy issues, on on trying to, you know, work our way through this terrible unemployment insurance bill that they've uh, put, you know, we've been able to work with the administration and make sure that you know workers are still you know being protected or uh, and trying to improve what what we've got here uh we've been working together on workers compensation issues and a whole variety of different public policy issues uh that you know if we didn't have andy uh, in the governor's office we wouldn't have to talk to okay uh basically you know the governor's office right now is really our only backstop for all the bad stuff uh that the legislature's uh, doing to workers in kentucky well and that you know, I, I guess that also is you, even if they're overriding, right? Um, it, it's. I think if if you if we, God forbid, had had a conservative, I think at a certain point it's so much noise people just stop paying attention. But I think the veto forces us to say, wait, why? Why is this being vetoed? Forces more conversation. Um, so even if they're overriding, I think there's some uh, there's some positivity um, to, to the conversations that get had as a result. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a, there's a value, you know, value judgment being made uh, as to whether or not these uh, bills that are being passed are, are good for Kentuckians or not. Uh, and obviously the governor's uh, 
taken it upon himself to, uh, you know, uh, push back on, on some of this stuff, uh, at least, uh, you know, have that part of the conversation out there for folks to see and, and let him, you know, uh, express the interest of, of working people. And, you know, again, it's difficult under the conditions we're in with the uh, balance of power in the legislature. But, uh, you know, when we've asked Andy to, to stand up for workers, he's done so. That's awesome to hear. That's that's good. Um, how 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 have you been, Bill? Like, how's how's life going for you? And then how are things at the AFL-CIO? Everything's uh, going great. Uh, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit about what's going on in the labor movement. I know you guys have been having a conversation about that already. Uh, you know, here in Kentucky, our you know labor movement is as strong as it's been, uh, in spite of all the attacks we've taken over the years. Uh, we've got people that you know in the construction trades that. You know, we've got people working all over the Commonwealth uh, in, in the largest numbers we've seen in many, many years. Uh, you know, we've got organizing campaigns going on all over the place. Uh, you know, down in Louisville, of course, we've got a lot of activity, you know, going on with our service industry, with uh, Starbucks, with Trader Joe's, with Air Price Books, uh, union organizing going on, younger workers getting engaged. Uh, we've held several events down in, in Louisville with uh, uh, folks to talk about books that they've written about the union movement, <clears throat> excuse me, and have had, you know, great turnout from uh, a lot of uh, uh, workers who are very much uh, interested in finding out about how they can become union members and organize their own shop. So I think, uh, you know, in general, you know, workers are starting to wake up as to, you know, what kind of policies are going to be good for them and what kind of policies are going to be bad for them. You know, you just take some examples, as I mentioned earlier, the unemployment insurance they passed, uh, you know, which is just terrible, a draconian bill that turned back the clock on unemployment insurance to such a degree that, you know, workers are having really a hard time qualifying for benefits. You know, they've got to uh, establish five uh, complete job searches a week and then put them into a computer uh, in order for them to continue uh, receiving benefits. And, and Formerly, the uh, number of ben the weekly benefits was 26 weeks was the maximum amount you could get. Now it's down to 16 weeks. Uh, so you know, workers have been put at a real disadvantage that are, that are looking for work and can't find jobs, as well as those that uh, are going to have difficulty complying with the uh, you know work search requirements, which are you know really crazy. Uh, you know, we've had examples where somebody went for a work search at, at three different Target stores and tried to get jobs through those stores. And they got rejected uh, as the job search requirements because they said that will only represent one employer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that isn't one employer. You know, the, those individual stores hire workers. Uh, so, you know, they've got all these things going on that are really disadvantaging folks and their ability to, you know, collect unemployment benefits and, you know, have a, a decent standard of living and such. Uh, so generally speaking, you know, in Kentucky here, our labor movement is uh, quite strong and, uh, had a lot of engagement from our members and we've got <clears throat> factories being organized and uh you know work is being activated uh and we're going to continue to do that uh, as we go forward into the election cycle here and uh you know trying to get the governor re-elected nice. i think I'll that's a real go ahead chris I'll... or doug okay i i just want to follow <laughs> up on, on on something that you said because it's it's very interesting i had a, co a conversation just like couple of hours ago with a friend who was a lobbyist and talking about uh, that very issue about the uh, workers, uh, not workers compensation, but uh, being out of work and having to, uh, to seek, look for jobs and that kind of thing. 
and he had talked to a, a legislator that had heard that um, somebody had been out of work for a long time, like two or three years, and it's still been collecting unemployment benefits. And of course, that's not true. <laughs> that's um, right. You have a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. And that 26 weeks, like you said, it, it was 26. And I think they dropped it down to 12 and maybe it's back, got brought back up to 16 or something yes. like that. Yeah, we were able to we were able to get them to bring it back up to sixteen in the last uh, last session. Uh, so yeah, that that actually changed. And, and you mentioned you know one of those anecdotes of somebody collecting for years. It's like a total canard. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, you know your requirements uh, to collect unemployment. You've got to be employed for a certain number of quarters, and you know have a certain amount of wages and all this stuff. And uh, you know, there's no way a person can continually can collect unemployment. Uh, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. This, oh, go ahead, Willie. I'll just, this reminds me of the, the Senate Bill 150 stuff where literally the biggest argument uh, that the other side has is that somehow children are being operated on. Of course, no child has ever had any gender reassignment surgery of any form in Kentucky. Uh, and I feel like the same thing happens when we talk about things like um, unemployment, where someone knows someone who's been on it for years or someone knows someone um it's frustrating uh how difficult it is for us to get real information to people yeah and that is a you know a constant issue in frankfurt you know while we're testifying and such we get people to come up and testify and they say something like some professor at some school said something like you know they get away with it you know and when we go up to testify you know i've got facts and figures you know there's a reality to what we talk about and then a lot of the you know hoopla and all the you know just false uh, statements that are made or, you know, pretty much are let go and, uh, you know, sometimes taken as fact and it really is a problem. Uh, you know, these committees where they're, you know, actually swearing you in now to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And uh, I doubt that's happening. <laughs> anyway, you know, uh, folks get up there and, you know, spend a lot of big yarns about stuff. And, you know, just like with the unemployment insurance bill, they kept talking about, you know, our uh, workforce uh, participation rate was so because everybody was collecting unemployment and we've got, you know, 160,000 job openings. And if we kick everybody off unemployment is the logic is that, you know, that's going to fill up all those jobs. Well, you know, that was totally ridiculous because there wasn't that many people on unemployment to begin with. So, uh, and, and folks that are on unemployment, of course, are on unemployment on a temporary, and on unemployment because they were working, you know, and, and they want to get another job. They just don't want to be forced to take a job that pays a whole lot less money uh, than they were making previously. And that's exactly what the law says now. It says that after six weeks of looking for, for work, uh, you need to take a job uh, paying at least 50% of what you were formerly making, 60% within 30 miles of your house. So if someone was making, you know, $20 an hour, what are they supposed to take a $10 an hour job? Uh, you know, that, that's ridiculous. And that's, that's the situation that we, we're in now. You know, and we just go along with the last session where they passed Senate Bill 7, uh, which was the one that would uh, prevent uh, public sector workers who's deducted from their paychecks, which is what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Uh, just another attack on, on working people, another attack on unions uh, to make it much more difficult uh, for us to maintain the membership and just to uh, throw another roadblock in the way uh, unnecessarily uh, since workers were very, you know, attuned and, and you know, in agreement process that was in place, uh, which basically doesn't cost a damn thing because it's old. You know, a couple of keystrokes on a computer. 
Uh, so, you know, that was just another example of what they did last session. And I might add, the uh, key sponsor of that bill was our, you know, current lieutenant governor candidate, Mr. Robbie Mills. Uh, so, you know, he's been, you know, at the forefront of all anti-union efforts, too. And uh, so that, you know, basically tells us what that where that campaign is at. Uh, Robbie Mills has been, you know, as, uh, you know, anti-labor as you can get, voted for a right-to-work bill, voted for against prevailing wage, uh, voted for the sewer bill, uh, supported this uh, uh, paycheck deception bill as well. That's ridiculous. So, um, Bill, I, I live in Berea and uh, found out a week, maybe two weeks ago, that we're going to get a Starbucks here. They bought some land. They're going to uh, tear down an old building and put in one of their new buildings. And uh, what would you tell, you know, new workers once they get it built and start getting workers hired and going in uh, about how to uh, how to make that shop a union shop? Well, the first thing I do is, you know, identify who the people are, you know, that are going to be working there in some manner, you know, and just give them a little education and talk to them about what else is going on around the country with the Starbucks workers, you know, and how important everybody to be together to try and organize against this behemoth of a company. Uh, you know, talk about the benefits that they would get uh, as opposed to what the conditions are going to be in their store uh, lacking a union, uh, lacking collective bargaining. So, you know, a little bit of education uh, about the unions in general and their ability to organize. Uh, you only need two people in a shop called the Concerted Protected Activity to begin an organizing campaign. And then they work with the others to, to talk to them and educate them and bring them along uh, in the process of trying to, you know, get enough cards signed so that they can have a, a union election. Uh, that's generally the picture. And, you know, with what's going on with Starbucks now, uh, the press and all of the information that's come out about the hundreds and hundreds of stores that have been been organized and the walkouts that have taken place and the actions against Starbucks, you know, that is probably the information that I would be providing to those folks and making sure, you know, that they were aware that this is a, a, a national issue, a, a big issue, and they be a part of it. Uh, so that that's where where I would do, uh, and like I, I would add, you know, Starbucks is a you know huge huge corporation, uh, and we've had such success in organizing uh, in terms of having elections at workplaces. Uh, the one thing that we haven't got is a collective bargaining agreement, uh, and that is the real problem, the real hang. And that's the goal, of course, is to get a contract to, to protect the workers on the job and guarantee the wages and benefits that they are owed. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done uh, still. And, you know, just winning organizing campaigns, you know, is one step. And as we know from organizing uh, over many, many years that, you know, a lot of times corporations take advantage of the opportunity to uh, decertify unions or to not bargain in good faith. So uh, a first contract is not achieved. And that happens in a great many cases. Uh, and then, you know, sooner or later, uh, they'll file a decertification petition and try to get rid of the union. So. Uh, a lot of this stuff, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, issues to be dealt with, a lot of, you know, real problems uh, for folks to understand that they've got to deal with when they get into an organizing campaign. And I just saw that PRO Act uh, sign there. That was very nice of you to put that up. Uh, and, of course, Richard uh, L. Trump was the, you know, former president of the National AFL-CIO and, and a personal friend of mine uh, who passed away unexpectedly. Uh, and supported and promoted the PRO Act uh, to uh, allow workers the uh, fairer opportunity uh, to, to organize in their workplaces and to get away from a lot of the roadblocks that uh, corporations and employers are able to put in the way of workers. So uh, the PRO Act is something that we've been pushing for years uh, and it will change in terms of the ability to workers uh, to have a fair shake 
uh, and not be subject to captive audience meetings, to surveillance, to retaliation, termination, and everything else employers do uh, to thwart union organizing campaigns. Um, Sandy Downs in the comments has said, uh, the anecdotal whopper is a staple of right-wing argument. Interview guy to diners says he feels like the economy isn't working, uh, and therefore people believe it. Uh, you're, we're seeing, and you, you've brought up this sort of uh, groundswell among young people. Um, what stories are they hearing, or do we know, um, outside of just poor working conditions, um, what's the antecedent to, 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 to the activity that we're seeing right now? You mean, what, what are we expecting going forward? Uh, no, no. What, what, um, what do you what, think is causing so many young people to suddenly... Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. ...the work that we've been doing for so long, yeah. Well, a lot of it had to do with the uh, with COVID uh, and the, and the, the workers that were really put at a disadvantage and were forced to work in you know untenable situations, uh, putting their you know their very lives at risk. You know, uh, found out that you know basically they were expendable uh, workers, uh, and that I think has colored a lot of their, their thinking. And then the really important factor here as well, and that's called social media, <laughs> where these workers are able to connect with each other even though they're in disparate and in widely dispersed, uh, uh, you know, uh, employment situations in, in cities. And, you know, so there's an ability to, to share information and to, uh, you know, pretty much support other, uh, through social media so that uh, workers don't feel like they're, uh, you know, doing things in isolation and they can learn from what happens in one place and they can, you know, get some, uh, you know, energy and excitement, you know, out of victories that are being taken place and, and, and realizing that, you know, it's not impossible to do, that they can, you know, band together uh, and they have rights on the job. Uh, the Section 7 the National Labor Relations Act, they have the right to form and join unions of their own choosing. Uh, and the process is there through the National Labor Relations Board uh, to, to uh, have a union election uh, where a majority of the workers will vote to uh, have a union or not. So, you know, they're, they're, they're knowledgeable. They're, they're, they've been uh, in about what, what's going on uh and in a, in a sense a lot of them treated like like dirt uh you know they've been put in, in bad situations in unsafe conditions and when you do hear about a lot of the issues that are coming up uh, uh regarding these workers it's not all about just getting you know a, a couple more dollars an hour having a fair opportunity to split up your tips and all that stuff it has to do with the working conditions it has to do with the hours of employment it has to do with part-time employment it has to do with safety and health on the job. It has to do with gun violence and people being put at risk, you know, in restaurants uh, without adequate safety. Uh, so those things are, are, you know, pretty paramount in a lot of times. Uh, but it all goes together. You know, you want to have good working conditions, but you also want to, you know, have, you know, good good uh, pay uh, and benefits too. So those are the things that you try to work for through collective bargaining. And, you know, I know you guys want to talk a little bit about the Teamsters, uh, uh, you know, agreement here. And uh, then, you know, we could segue to Mike. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, we would like to talk about that a little bit. I know that uh, the Teamsters are the Teamsters and you're AFL-CIO, but uh, you're, you're brothers, too, I would think. And, and uh, um Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the the UPS and and the Teamsters. Okay, sure enough, and you guys, are, you know, the news is out there that they reached a tentative agreement, which will have to be voted on uh, by the membership, mind you. Okay, uh, and some of the things that they were able to get were, you know, pretty significant. And you know, when the total value of the act is costed out, and 
the amount of money uh, that will accrue to the workers over the five-year period of the contract. I believe the number was something we're in the range of $30 billion. So, you know, that would be, you know, their wages, the benefits, and, and everything else that was put into the contract. So you see there's an ability to have this, uh, uh, I hate to say the word redistribution, uh, or a fairer distribution of, of the proceeds of the corporation. Uh, and having all that money flow into the pockets of workers, you know, that's what drives our economy, our, our, our spending by middle-class America. And this would bolster that greatly. And, you know, across the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you know, tens of thousands of UPS workers, uh, you know, in, in towns and cities across the Commonwealth, plus the biggest air hub in the world over here for UPS. Uh, so this was a significant uh, impact on Kentucky and our workers, as well as those that are not in the in UPS or in unionized facilities, because we will help uh, wages up of other workers. So everybody, you know, will say uh, has a stake in, you know, how well these workers uh, get in their contract. And as you know, it was pretty significant over the life of the contract. There's going to be at least a $7.50 an hour uh, wage increase uh, from full-time and some of the part-time workers. So, you know, there's a, a lot that went into this agreement. There are conditions, as I mentioned earlier, that are that were critical uh, to getting getting uh, into the table. One of the things which sounded pretty, you know, basic and elementary was the, you know, ability to have air conditioning in, in some of these trucks there. Uh, that the UPS used to deliver. So that, that was a big issue with, you know, a lot of the heat that's going on and a lot of the, you know, uh, problems that people get from, from being overheated from, you know, from, you know, being in a non-air-conditioned truck. So a lot of the conditions were, were talked about as, as well as the wages and benefits. And, you know, they made improvements on the part-time workers, and that was one of the key issues as well. But I think one of the real lessons, the real takeaway of this is that Teamsters were, uh, mobilized uh, and organized, uh, and that really, I think, changed the uh, whole, you know, you know, the whole status quo of, of the negotiations. You know, when uh, UPS started realizing that, you know, look, this is not going to be uh, a cakewalk. That uh, these uh, folks are serious. Uh, they will go out on, and it will cripple the country uh, as well. You know, the company and and maybe even the country as far as uh, the impact on the economy. So. There was a whole lot riding on this, and uh, it looks like the Teamsters, you know, uh, you know, they really kind of applied that old axiom, which is uh, what we use in the labor movement, which is the threat of a strike is more powerful than the strike, uh, and they actually prepared uh, greatly and mobilized uh, effectively uh, to get up, get their members mobilized uh, and informed and engaged. Uh, and when you've got, you know, so many workers, I forget what the total number was. It was 135,000, I believe, uh, that was going to be affected. Uh, that's difficult to do, you know, but uh, with the new leadership that they have with Sean O'Brien uh, and my friend Fred Zuckerman at the uh, Teamsters uh, International Union, uh, you know, they showed uh, they showed their, their strength uh, and their unity and their solidarity, and I think that's what, you know, got us to the point where we're at now, uh, which has been, I think, uh, really significant. Uh, and it'll have, a, it'll have a spillover effect to other industries and such. Uh, in fact, there's another trucking company that's been, in the middle of negotiations, Yellow Freight, another huge operation uh, that I think is coming to the point where they're going to be uh, having a tentative agreement as well. So we'll see how things play out. We, you know, be hopeful that uh, you know the rank and file will see all the benefits and they'll uh, vote to uh, to ratify that. Uh, and you know, everybody will be better off in, in UPS. And uh, you know, the corporation will still continue making lots and lots of money. They made you know so much money. It's you know almost unfathomable you know the billions and billions of dollars that UPS is making, uh, and this is just a way uh, and demonstrate 
power of collective bargaining uh, to try to level the playing field and to give workers uh, what, what they deserve, uh, which are good wages and benefits. I'm, I'm curious uh, to like, we, we see what is being portrayed as a great deal by uh, with what happened with UPS, but uh, the, the train industry several months ago did not get a very good deal. Um, it, it seemed like they were going to get a little bit more and then it got wiped away and then they got even less. So I'm curious of like what happened because I mean, the train industry is equally as important to getting stuff to us as UPS. So what, what's the deal there? Like why, why did they get well, less? Well, you know, and I can't say for, for certain who got less or more, but there was a real significant difference between uh, UPS uh, in the trucking industry uh, than the rail industry. Uh, number one is that there's a multitude of different unions uh, engaged in the rail. You have your Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. You have your United Transportation Workers, the Brotherhood of Maintenance Away, the Signalman's Union, the Machinist Union, uh, all doing different tasks involved with the rail industry. Uh, and, you know, honestly, some of them supported the agreement uh, and, and a couple of the other unions did not. So there was some disagreement among the unions as to, you know, whether they were in agreement with the agreement or not. You know, uh, and I don't think it was a total wash. And, and I think even subsequent to the agreement that they, they came across with some, you know, concessions from the from the employers, you know, about all the overtime work and such. So, you know, if you would say if I was going to classify it maybe as a mixed bag, but I don't want to talk too specifically about all the details of the agreement because I'm not totally familiar with them. It's been a little while since we looked at it. Uh, but I think, you know, you've got a different set of circumstances. Plus, there are different laws at work too. It's the Railway Labor Act, which is uh, the controlling law uh, for the rail industry. Uh, you know, creates a little bit of a different circumstance uh, because then you have the intervention of the federal government, which you all know uh, was a part of this whole equation here. You know, and basically was looked frowned upon uh, to a, to a great degree. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, some of them sounded like they were in agreement with. with Posed and passed, and other unions in the rail industry were not. So, a uh, different set of circumstances. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, agree with saying that it was, you know, a totally bad agreement or anything. I don't think it was a bad agreement. I just think that they did not get, you know, everything that they wanted initially. And uh, maybe some of this stuff was was agreed to afterwards in terms of concessions from the company. So, different deal, uh, you know, and and maybe they weren't ready or able in terms of uh, the, the law to strike because there, there's probably provisions in the Railway Labor Act which actually prevent folks from striking. So that's a, a whole different dynamic. Yeah. Well, uh, Bill, all of this is, I think what I'm taking away the most outside the fact that you're clearly <laughs> one of the most intelligent people I've heard talk on this topic, you, you are so um, able to pull out uh, facts and figures and not just anecdotes uh, that may or may not be real. Uh, but I have you, a couple of anecdotes, though. Don't worry about that. You, it's a good, well, <laughs> it was that word redistribute when we sort of pause as Americans. And I'm a linguist by trade. I was thinking about that word while you were talking. So uh, it comes from Latin, distribar, which is to divide. And then the tribute is like to assign to something. Mm. That's literally what companies do, right? They assign what the money is going to be used for either for conditions or either for pay. Um, 
And I don't, I'm just, it's interesting that we're so afraid of even talking about the concept sometimes uh, when literally we are redistributing money every single time we come up with a budget, right? We're, we're saying, here's where the money is and here's what we're going to do with it. I, I, I think your, your comments are very well taken because, you know, as I mentioned there with a the little predicate was a, uh, gee whiz, the much maligned concept of redistribution, <laughs> which is absolutely, you know, ridiculous because just like you said, the whole, you know, society and whole economy is based on distributing the proceeds of our, you know, our production or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and basically, you know, uh, well, our goal is is to redistribute the, the the profits of the enterprise to the workers, you know, uh, so that it's not just achieved at the top or, or or the CEO, you know, doesn't get, you know, the $250 million uh, and the workers, you know, get nothing, you know. Uh, and that's a lot of what happens, and especially in a non-union environment where you know it's it's there's there's no real negotiation going on, and you know workers are given what they get, and and that's the end of the story, and they have no real rights on their job, and that's one of the things I bring up constantly when I talk to you know our membership union members is that you know without a union contract, uh, you know you're classified as what? You you I usually ask this question: What are you classified as? You're, you're classified as an at-will employee, right? And what does that mean? That means you have no rights to your job, okay? You you know, if the employer comes in tomorrow and you've been there for 30 years and they say they don't like you and you're gone, you really don't have any recourse uh, unless you have a union contract. So that's the difference between, you know, having rights on the job with a contract that protects you that doesn't allow for arbitrary and discriminatory actions to be taken against workers, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, then you're an at-will employee, and that's what you know, is so important about, you know, being in a union uh, and appreciating the rights and benefits you have under a union contract. Beautiful. Well, you just answered what was going to be my final question, which is what would you say <laughs> to someone who isn't sure uh, if it's right for them? Any final uh, words uh, that you want to leave us with about anything, really? <laughs> well, that covers a lot. No. <laughs> well, I will We're say that. Uh, union, anything that you wanted to say tonight that you haven't said before we uh, close her out? Yeah, you know, well, you know, I, I've been in this, you know, for you know, well over 40 years, you know, studied unions and uh, been involved with organizing and every aspect of the union movement pretty much. Uh, and I am gratified and excited about all of the energy around organizing that's going on around the country. And the fact that you folks are stand, sitting here talking about unions, it really is indicative of, you know, this new uh, energy, this new excitement and this uh, focus on, on new workers' rights. Uh, and I, I think there's nothing but good that's going to come out of the things like the Teamsters Agreement, uh, like the Starbucks campaign uh, and all the other campaigns that are going on to protect the rights you know, of workers and fast food and service workers and whoever else is out there, uh, you know, working for a living. So uh, I think there's a, you know, a real ground out here when workers realize, you know, without a union, uh, they don't have any rights on the job. Uh, and with the union, they can progress. Uh, they can get a decent standard of living, uh, decent wages, decent benefits uh, and respect and dignity and not be treated like dirt. Bill, beautifully said, thank you so much uh, for coming tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, Chris, can you give us a call to action? And then Doug, can you close us out? Yeah, yeah. So our call to action, we need you to help ensure four more years of a compassionate Commonwealth. Give us your views and work with us to expand the voter support for Andy and our great slate 
of statewide candidates. Join us for our campaign kickoff meeting on August 19th. Again, August 19th at Pivot Brewing. We'll have Representative Sherilyn Stevenson. We'll have Nima. We'll have Willie. Uh, and our featured speaker uh, is Representative Colonel Pam Stevenson. We all love her. Um, and uh, I, I guess we're left off. I, I mean, we're also going to have the, the wonderful likes of Doug and myself, too. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, maybe I should just go ahead and close it, because if you tell them that I'm going to be there, they might want to might not show up. Progress Kentucky is a nonprofit organization registered with the Kentucky Secretary of State and organized as a 501c4. We are affiliated with the Indivisible Project, a Commonwealth Alliance Voter Engagement, commonly referred to as CAVE. We are also proud members of the Forward to Kentucky Network. Progress Kentucky's goal is to educate, organize, increase voter turnout, and advance a progressive agenda through civic engagement. Make sure to join us next week, where we'll be joined by Buddy Wheatley, the Democratic nominee for the Kentucky Secretary of State. We'll check in on Buddy's ideas for making voting more accessible in Kentucky and why current Secretary of State Michael Adams might not deserve the pro-democracy accolades he's been receiving. This should be a great interview and episode. Production of episode 123, yes, this is our 123rd, was by the amazing one and only Nate Orshan. And thank you, Nate, for the theme songs. You can find more information and music at natosongs.com. If you miss our weekly live stream on Facebook or on YouTube, audio podcasts and our show notes are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes I listen to the podcast while I'm uh, mowing. If you do listen to the podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. Logo and some graphic content provided by Couchfire Media. More information can be found at couchfiremedia.com. Hope to see you all next week. <laughs>